We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another often requested guest joining me this week. She is a strong chess player. Uh, her peak rating was in the 2100s. She's a USCF expert. She's competed in U.S. Women's Championships. Uh, but of course, she's best known as a teacher. She is a New York City public school teacher, but again, better known as a chess teacher. She's one of the primary coaches at IS318 in Brooklyn, famed IS318 with more nationals titles than I can count. I think literally, I, I really couldn't figure out how many they have, but it's over 12 and maybe Elizabeth can tell us in a second. But um, she's of course been featured in the movie Brooklyn Castle. She was featured I mean, I should say IS-318 was featured in Brooklyn Castle and in How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff, an excellent book. Um, she was named the University of Texas at Dallas Chess Educator of the Year in 2019. She is also a friend of mine. I was lucky enough to get to watch her teach and learn from her back at Chess in the Schools many years ago. And I... I knew she was a great teacher even before she was famous, So, but now she's joining us today to share all of her chess learning secrets. Elizabeth Spiegel, are you still there? Yeah, thank you for having me, Ben. Yes, we're finally making it happen. I'm excited. I know that, that you've got a unique blend of, of course, you're a great teacher, but you also, I feel like you're good at highlighting what other teachers and chess players can learn. Like You're good at um, pulling out things that that people need to work on that they might not even notice that they need to work on, whether it be from a teaching or a playing perspective. But I know that what's most current in your life, Elizabeth, as a chess teacher is you've, you've taught so many kids over the years, but now your own son is getting into chess. So I thought it might be fun if we started off by you just telling us how, how that's been going, how, how chess is on the home front. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, chess has been kind of amazing on the home front. Um, my son Noah at first wasn't very into 
into chess. Um, but then he got really into it uh, uh, this summer, and he spends the weekend listening to listening to chess kid videos, listening to um, to Mike Klein, and and playing on um, play Magnus and playing the bots on on chess kid, and like he comes home and that's all he wants to do. Um, and it's amazing to see how much he like loves chess since he's almost addicted to it as a six year old. Um, and we hadn't let him have any any screens at all uh, until now he has like one of Harvey's old phones that he uses to play on um, play Magnus. And it's amazing like how passionate he is about chess and and how much time he's spending on it. He's actually a little bit afraid to play in tournaments. He played in two at uh, three eighteen two like Saturday practice tournaments. Um, and it was, I think, hard for him to play the older kids, uh, even though he did, like, pretty okay. But, you know, he, he can't, he, like, losing is very painful for him. Um, so he's he's not really playing so much in tournaments. He's just sort of playing the bots on Chess Kid. But it's really fun to see and and really fun, like, when he gets excited about something, like, he'll ask for a chess lesson. And it's, it's so nice to, like, relate to your own kid that way. Um, yeah, I'm a little jealous. My son, I, I teach an af- one of the after school programs I do is at his school and he, he likes the sort of um, pageantry of a chess club, I guess. I mean, just that it brings like the social aspect that it brings so many kids together. And, um, you know, he sees he's, he sees his dad in a different light than than he would at home. But the chess he could take or leave, and I think it, it, a lot of it does come down to the the competitive aspect. He doesn't like losing, and he hasn't sorted out like how how to work through those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, a little while ago, when when Noah was in pre K, I volunteered to do the chess club at his his elementary school, hoping he would get into it. And he also liked being with the older kids, but didn't really like the chess. Um, but this summer, uh, we had two kids move in um uh, they were both my students um and they're really into into chess and harvey's went from when he moved in he was a thousand in april and now he's 1750 wow um, and he plays at the marshall all the time yeah really amazing right um, man he's gonna be uh yeah, inc- i'm gonna have to have him on the show <laughs> yeah oh you should <laughs> um it, it's incredible it was incredible to watch him like get better every tournament he played like and he'd play three tournaments a week um but he's a he's a wonderful kid and noah loves him and when he moved in like it it changed immediately with noah before he also didn't like chess so much and now he sort of just picked it up from from harvey and how old is harvey apologies if you said but Uh, no harvey's 12 okay yeah um yeah so i guess it makes a difference to have a role model in terms of uh you know, anyone listening, whether they're trying to motivate themselves or motivate a child. Uh, but so what do you see someone like Harvey who's made that huge jump? I mean, of course, the neuroplasticity that only a 12 year old has is helpful. But but what what does he do besides play a lot? What is he working on um, to to get better so fast? Um, he he watches some like he watches like Magnus Blitz games, I think. Because um, he was talking about some Magnus Blitz game. Um, like the when Chess he was 24 when he streams? Or? Yeah, I don't know exactly what he does. He watches a lot of chess and a lot of like live chess. Uh-huh. Um, and like he'll mention in his games, like he centralized his queen. He's like, oh, just like this game Magnus had in, in Blitz. Huh. But I think really most of it is he's literally playing every Monday and Wednesday night. 
and both days on weekends, um, almost every weekend. Uh, so you know, of course, he goes to the 18, so he has a, a, a chess class every right. day. Yeah, and you've mentioned in previous um, interviews, and I think it was even in Brooklyn Castle, like y- you've mentioned part of the secret of uh, your school, IS318 success, is that they get seven chess classes a week. Is that still the case? Um, yeah, seven in sixth and seventh grade, and then five in eighth grade. So is Harvey um, doing that? <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and I mean, uh, again, having seen you teach, I know that some of that, there there may be some modesty there, and you're giving all the credit to that. But certainly, I mean, it do, obviously, it can't hurt. The more you play, the better, and tournament competition in particular. So what is what is available on Monday and Wednesday nights? So Monday, there's a, there's an amazing tournament. It's under 1,800 and, and the FIDE Open. So it's one round, one slow game every ah, night. Ah, those are nice, weeks. yeah. And then Wednesday's the under 14 and under 2,000. Okay, and that's at the Marshall Chess Club? Yeah. Okay. And 318 students get free entry to the Marshall. Um, I don't know exactly what our arrangement is. I think maybe we pay for it. Um, or maybe the Marshall like, gives it to us. Okay. They're very generous. I'm not sure what the agreement is exactly, but uh, it means he can play as much as he wants. Okay. So he's watching videos. Is he doing a lot of puzzles, or is he like one of these sort of learn-by-doing type chess students? He does a lot of chessable. We do a lot of chessable at 318 um, because it's made it much more palatable for kids to learn their openings. Um so for the advanced kids, we bought them accounts and, and their homework is adjustable. And that's basically how they do their tactics and how they learn their openings. Okay. Oh, cool. Um, and we also do a lot of the steps books, um, at least once a week in class. Yeah. So I know that both you and I are, I want, I want to talk about chessable and steps. Um, you and I are both fans of steps and I've, I've um, heard you talk about it a little bit. So are you of the mindset where you do it page by page, like, book by book or do you kind of pick things out depending on on what you think a student needs um so i love the instructor manuals for lessons and i do a lot of lessons out of them um i feel like the tactics and the end games are not at the same level i feel like the the end games are much harder um than the tactics and the tactics are actually pretty easy um uh, as far as the workbooks, I give them to the kids and they work in them independently when I'm working with a small group. So like if I'm teaching them, like the Karakon group, then the um, kids who don't play the Karakon will be working in the, their steps books. And the way it works is they uh, I have the, the answers in a folder and after every five pages or so they get the answers and they check it themselves and it's sort of the honor system that they don't cheat. Oh, wow. Um, and then when they finish the book, they move on to the next book um, and, and they work through that over three years. So I, I was really lucky that uh, I offered the, um, this guy who came over and did this tour promoting the steps. I let him stay in my guest room and then he very kindly repaid me by sending me a huge box of his slightly damaged books. Oh, wow. Um, so I had like a treasure trove of like boxes of bo- boxes of steps books Um which is great because I don't think I could really get the school to buy them. Uh, but I, I must have like, he must've sent me a thousand dollars worth of steps books. Wow. That's amazing. awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting perspective on, on the, the steps, 
um, curriculum. I've do the kids are the kids um do they find the presentation like off putting at all? Do they just dive right in, or are they like you know? Because some, I mean, you're teaching older kids than I primarily teach, but I find that mm-hmm. some tactics books and chess books generally are presented in a kind of a dry way. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily resonate with kids, even if they know it's, it's good for their chess. So do you, do you encounter that issue? Yeah. Um, I'm doing it in a, I'm doing it in a classroom setting. So at at first I would do the page with them and we would all do the problems together maybe. And then uh, not necessarily, but, but with most of the classes, um, and then They'd be doing it on their own. I have a big chart that tracks where they're at. Um, and sometimes, you know, I let them work with other kids if they're having trouble. So I, I feel like that's a big a big way to get kids to do things. Um, I get a lot of questions about that. Like, how do you get kids to do so much work? And yeah, I feel like exactly. a, lot of, a, a lot of it is actually giving them an opportunity to talk to each other. Um, I feel like you're asking a lot of a kid if a kid has to sit silently and listen to you for a long time. But if you give a kid problems and they can talk to their friend about them, I feel like most kids don't mind that at all. Um, and that's really all you have to do to get a lot of work out of kids. Okay. I mean, probably but, it, it helps that there's a culture in place at 318, I would think. Absolutely. But, you know, this it's three years. so And, and the classes are not – the sixth grade classes are not – as exposed to the older kids. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm also a very strict teacher. So to some extent, like you make them be quiet and then you let them start letting them talk. Right. Okay. That, that's helpful. And it's funny that you, I mean, that a lot of people ask you that. Cause yeah, I mean, I've, I've, have a few students. I mean, for me, it's like, a, it's a, I mean, I know I've interviewed many, many chess trainers and some of them say like, you know, I have these strict rules and um, if the kids don't do homework, then I won't teach them sort of thing that I feel. And I don't, I don't do that. And that fe- sometimes feels like that would be my only recourse with uh, like private students in particular. Um, but anyway, um yeah, I mean, it's totally different. Like, I have my kids in a classroom setting, and, and I'm their teacher, and I'm giving them a grade, and they're coming in with the expectation that uh, I will make them do work. So yeah. it's, it, I don't necessarily give my private students homework either. It really depends on what they're trying to get out okay. of the lessons. Yeah. Um, okay, and getting back to, to Chessable, you mentioned it's a good way for students to learn openings, and I know that in the um, – in the chess educator of the year speech you gave, uh, which is on YouTube and which I'll, I'll link to, um, you, you mentioned that, uh, counter to me and a lot of people we've had on the show, you think openings are are very important for students. So could, could you, uh, um, expand on that a bit, Elizabeth? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. Like, I, I think there are a lot of silly ways to study openings, but I think that, Openings allow you to sort of learn a lot from your from your experience and from your, from your previous games. And if you have openings that are well chosen that um, allow you to uh, like have some thematic ideas, for example, and some thematic pawn structures, and allow you to learn a few ideas or themes and then be able to apply them in your games, I think that's really like meaningful learning. 
Um, uh, so I, I think that's a way you can really help a kid progress in chess. Right, you can choose the openings that, that are more instructive. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I end up, and uh, again, I'm certainly not the only one, and I try, you know, I'm, I welcome counter viewpoints. I don't feel like I have the final answer on this by any means, but the reason I end up personally talking about openings um, uh, being uh, overemphasized a lot is just I feel like uh, adult chess players in particular end up spending such a large percentage of their study time studying it. Um, mm-hmm. So with your students, if you say, do you have an, an opinion in terms of if you're saying go study chess? I mean, obviously, some of it is work that you're doing with them and game analysis. So it might be hard to separate. But do you have a sense of like how much of their time is spent studying openings as compared to how much is spent doing tactics? Um, so I guess I, I would say that they have at least one 45 minutes a week in class where they're doing tactics in the workbook. Um, what they're doing on chessable is I would guess 20 minutes of tactics and 20 minutes of openings a week. Um, we try not to give too much homework just because it seems like they're in school for a long time and, yeah. um, it doesn't seem so reasonable to give kids a lot of homework um, to me, uh, especially if they're playing chess tournaments on the weekends. Um, but yeah, I would say. Okay. So that's a three to one ratio of tactics to, to openings. Yeah. I I'm on board with that, especially because as you say, they're playing so much uh, competitively. And when you're playing in tournaments, you're just, you're in, if you're analyzing the games, as you guys do, you're invariably going to get a lot of op- like a lot of opening structure knowledge is going to seep in over time. So I guess, um, yeah, from my perspective, you- go ahead. I'm so sorry. I probably give an opening lecture once a week also on, on some part of their opening repertoire or some line or something. Okay. Like out of how many lectures? Oh, oh, like one a, out of either five or seven. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds reasonable. I, all right. I don't, I don't think we, we disagree as much as I feared. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, especially uh, as as people get older, I mean, you teach, um, you know, and for, for anyone, listeners who aren't familiar with the IS-3 team program, first of all, you should familiarize yourself. Even we have a lot of listeners from other countries, but the, the movie Brooklyn Castle, I think, translates pretty well across cultures um, and as does how children succeed. So you can you can find out more about the program, but... So these are kids aged like what is it, twelve to fourteen, Elizabeth, primarily. Yeah. So twelve to fourteen, and the rating range is impressive. I mean, you you you're willing to take all kids, so you get plenty of kids below a thousand. But I mean, you've had players as strong as what twenty three, twenty four hundred when they leave three eighteen. Yeah, Justice and Justice Williams and James Black. Uh, Justice was twenty four hundred, and James was twenty three hundred. I think. Um, yeah. uh, of course, they were you know huge outliers. Um, but we've had a number of kids over two thousand, and we regularly have quite a few kids who are eighteen hundred, seventeen hundred, in, in that range. Yeah. So just um, a wide range of of skill levels and um, well established procedures for for uh, how to you know how to help people improve um by the way i i forgot in the introduction to to mention the, your crowning achievement the or is 318's crowning achievement elizabeth that in addition to all the national 
uh, scholastic championships that you guys have won for your age. You won the, uh, the, the middle school team won the national high school championship in, uh, what, what was it? 2012. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, yeah, 2012, I think. Yeah. That's just, that's crazy. I was talking to, I texted Donnie Ariel, our mutual friend, um, yeah. don't worry, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to keep things, um, keep things on the up and up here. But he, 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 of course is not even a sports fan, but he said it's the greatest achievement in modern sports or something. What, what 318 did by beating out the high school teams as a, a middle school, I mean, a junior high, it, it's incredible. So let me be the last to congratulate you on that. Um, oh, thank you so much. And uh, we have a couple questions from supporters of the podcast. Um, um, I believe they are chess teachers based on their questions. I don't, I've interacted with them a little bit online, but I don't know these two gentlemen personally. But the first one we kind of touched on, but uh, Andres Blatch uh, wrote in to ask How do you keep children interested in chess puzzles made in twos, for example? So you you pretty much already tackled that. I don't know if you have anything to add. Um, yeah, I mean, I think choosing good examples and, and expressing appreciation for like chess's beauty, I think is important. Like, I think you have to be a role model for chess kids to love chess and for kids to love the aesthetics of chess. Um, so I, I definitely try to verbalize that in class. Um, and then, yeah, I feel like in sixth grade classes, I regularly will teach like a short lesson and then they'll have a worksheet that they do with a friend and when they finish, they can play. And so the worksheet is like clearly a bridge between we finish the lesson and, and when you're done, you can play. And it's it's not too long, so it's not doesn't seem unmanageable. Um, it should be a slightly easier lesson than the level so that, you know, the whole class can do it. Um, and maybe there'll be one challenge problem or two challenge problems or the backside will be harder. Um, and then they come up with a friend. And so I feel like if you keep the, the worksheets manageable, um, especially at the beginning, it's easier. Yeah, I don't know what age Andres teached, but the lesson I had to learn the hard way was I just make the puzzles easier. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of uh, a lot of problems stem from um, the kids lose interest when they don't know where to begin. So, I mean, it's helpful mm-hmm. to go through step by step exactly how to solve the puzzle. Um, the, the searching method as the steps call it. And, uh, and, um, yeah, don't make them too challenging if you can help it. Um, but of course sometimes it's a challenge, but yeah, I also do. I also think it's good to have students discuss it. I mean, show, you know, it's, I, it makes it much more interesting for the kids. Yeah. Um, uh, John Galvin, my assistant principal sort of taught me this technique, just turn and talk. So you just, when you ask a slightly harder question, you know, it can't be something simple like a one-move answer. But when you ask a harder question, you just say, um, turn and talk to the person next to you about it. And it means that every kid in the class is, like, having to verbalize their thoughts on it, which is really what they you want them to be doing. Like, that's the whole point, right? You can get not one kid answering the question, but every single kid in class having to compose a thought in their head. Um, then you've much more effectively taught the class. Yeah. Okay. And the next question is from John Cromarty. Um, and he asks, what's the best, excuse me, best method of giving chess lessons to multiple students of varying skill levels in a classroom setting. It would seem that many concepts that would be good for 600 rated children 
would be too trivial for children rated over a thousand. On the other hand, if you teach more advanced concepts, it might be too difficult for the lower rated students to grasp. How do you find the balance? Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of dividing my kids into groups and 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 six hundred and a thousand. I think you can teach together. Like I could see teaching like the Green Coakley book to to that group, right? And especially you can use turn and talk so that when you have a question, uh, kids will at least like have someone next to them to to share an opinion with that their opinion might seem reasonable to. Do you know what I mean? Like you can, that way you accommodate all kinds of ranges of correctness. Um, I, I do a lot of like, you know, I'll have worksheets for, for advanced kids. or I do a lot of small group stuff um, because it is really hard to teach kids of disparate levels. But I think if you have, um, if you have, if you don't teach like tactics themselves, if you teach like topics, um, like in the Coakley book, um, or if you have, uh, as you talk about with the steps, like the methodology to how you get to the answer, you know, so if you're teaching something like double attacks where you're attacking a piece and threatening checkmate and you have a series of questions that gets you to the solution, then it should be sort of the same difficulty for a 600 and a thousand. You know, if you're saying which pieces are not protected, um, where could the queen be so that it would be checkmate? Where can you move so that you're attacking the unprotected piece and threatening to go to the square where you'd be giving checkmate? You know what I mean? Like maybe if if there's a methodology, it doesn't matter so much the ratings of the kids. Okay. I believe that that will be helpful to John. Yeah, I'm – one thing um, – in a classroom setting, it can sometimes be helpful. I mean, uh, I don't feel like I'm breaking a ton of new ground here, but um, – you know, you, you can be very uh, tactical about who you call on. I mean, for easier questions, call on the lower rated people for or even if they're not rated, whatever, the lower level people. And for more advanced questions, you can you can uh, call on the higher rated people, whether they're raising their hands or not. Um, just keep them on their toes. Um, so Absolutely. what's up? Uh, absolutely. OK, yeah. so. I did also want to follow up, Elizabeth, um, since since you became such a, you know, since you were chronicled in, I, again, I can't, I'm sorry, I keep saying you, it's just because we're friends, so I think of it as you, but I don't mean to diminish the, I mean, obviously, the kids, first of all, deserve the most credit for, you know, everything that 318 has accomplished, and uh, the aforementioned John Galvin, I know, just does incredible amount of uh of work to to work with the kids and inspire the kids. So I'm sorry if I, for anyone listening if I'm gi- giving all the credit to Elizabeth. But but um anyway, um getting back on topic. So has your teaching changed since Brooklyn Castle? I mean, obviously it's this like tiny slice of your life. You know, it's it's 90 minutes, but then it's like creates this giant impression that people have of you. So was there anything that you felt um and that you felt maybe I'm not not like in a malicious way, but just something that didn't necessarily uh, catch capture you in your essence. And if there's things that have changed about your teaching, whether they be like from a stylistic or from an actual chess uh, point of view in the uh, years that have passed since that movie. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I I was very lucky to be in the movie. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, like it did amazing things for my life and and. Um, and for chess, and 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 it was an incredible opportunity. Um, I, I never felt particularly comfortable on camera, and I don't never felt p- 
particularly comfortable watching myself on camera. Um, I guess I would say, uh, has my teaching changed? I think having kids really changed my teaching or changed my approach to kids. Um, and maybe made me a lot more patient and a lot more also patient with parents, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the steps have changed my teaching quite a bit. Um, how? How have they changed it? Um, I really love the steps sort of for the, the how methodical it is and yeah. how, um, how pure the examples are. Um, it's... Yeah, it's made me think about breaking down concepts and and asking leading questions and having having search search strategies a lot more. I would say. Yeah, I remember when when you discovered them and were just post random pages in the Facebook chess teachers group because like there there's just nothing nothing else like it. Um, and yeah. following up on on the movie, so I thought of that. Of course, I I rewatched it the other day. I hadn't seen it. I think maybe since it came out. Um, and I was thinking about that, like when you have scenes like where, where you're meeting um, with Mr. Galvin and finding out about the budget cuts, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, that was uh, so for listeners who either don't remember or haven't seen the movie. I mean, there's um, a lot of it is about just following the, the, the school program, the kids and the, the teachers around as they um, go to a few tournaments, the state championships, the grade school nationals, the junior high nationals, but there's also a few sort of, uh, you get to know the, the family lives of the kids a little bit, but there's also, it was in the midst or in the, the, uh, following the financial crisis of 2008, there were some budget cuts that were basically, uh, filtered through to the New York public school system and affected the chess team. Um, so when you're finding out about it and you're on camera, how did, like, how did that feel? Was it, was it, a strange feeling like was it hard to have a natural reaction when you're being filmed all the time or did you at some point get used to it well you know what whatever what would inevitably happen is like she'd be filming something and and the bell would ring and and so we have to refilm it oh okay and so a lot of it was like they were real moments but like she never got it the first time because inevitably something exterior would happen um, so it was hard for me, like I'm a terrible actor, um, and I feel like you can tell in some of those conversations that I was like, ah, what do I say? Um, <laughs> That's interesting. I, I actually, I wouldn't have guessed that just based on seeing it. Uh, maybe I'm just naive, <laughs> um, but, but that, that makes sense. I mean, that's always what they say about like the real world and shows like that, you know, <laughs> like that, yeah. that there's just, just tons of takes and that they can just tell whatever story they want. But, um, obviously we're not, we're not saying that's what happened with Brooklyn castle, but, but the, yeah, that would be, um, that would be a strange feeling. Um, and it, I mean, and it seems like, uh, I mean, it's a big school. There's so many kids. Every you know, kids are always vying for your attention. So it must have been a lot to have that added on to everything else that that goes into the the life of a teacher. Yeah, I think at the time I never really conceptualized like what what was happening. Like I knew they were filming, but I didn't actually think that it would necessarily end up becoming a film or you know. I mean, I don't know. It, I, I didn't realize it would be such a big deal as it was. Then. Right. And then once it came out, I mean, you know, it's not like it was Titanic or something, but it certainly made a big splash in the chess world and the the, the documentary won some awards. Uh, 
Pobo was on The Daily Show. Was it just him or did someone go with him? He's one of the kids in the movie. Um, was it? Uh, I think it was just him. Okay. And what was the craziest thing that happened to you? Um, Maybe Katie went with him. Okay. Sure. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I think she did, the uh, the creator of the movie. Um, um, what's Sorry, What's I know Katie's last name, but I'm going to blatantly mispronounce it. <laughs> Can you say it, uh, Elizabeth? <laughs> De- I think it's my two Della Major. Okay. Sorry, Katie. Um, okay. Hopefully we, we did it justice. Um, what was the craziest thing that happened to you in sort of the, whether it be from, from the book, how children succeed or from um, Brooklyn castle, any outlandish, like meeting someone super famous or opportunities that, that pass by. Oh, um, um, John Hamm, uh, Don Draper from, yeah. From um, Mad Men, yeah. Invited us from Mad Men invited us to a screening at, at the Soho some fancy Soho um screening room for, for fancy people. Um and then he came over to me and, and said something about how much he admired what I did, my work. Wow, that's cool. And wow. I, I like I looked up and he was saying that to me. I was like, ah <laughs> so I was a big fan of um of him. I'm not used to seeing like I don't watch very much television, but I, I really like that show. And so that was nice. Yeah. Um, once I was walking down the street in the Lower East Side and I was like sobbing about something in my personal life. And this, this woman with two kids ran up to me and was like, oh, you're the chess teacher. <laughs> um, but I was like, you know, crying about something. So it's really <laughs> terrible. It's <laughs> very funny. Guys, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about an opportunity to buy a rare chess collectible that I think is pretty cool. It's a limited edition set of four coffee mugs that feature hand-drawn portraits of all 16 undisputed world chess champions. It's hard to do these mugs justice on a podcast, but I'm going to try. The mugs are hand-drawn by a professional artist and each mug features four of the world champions on it. Each world champion is pictured in front of a chessboard with one of their most famous positions set up. My favorite of the mugs is the one featuring Fisher, Spassky, Karpov, and Petrosian. These mugs were commissioned by a chess fan and listener of Perpetual Chess, and he assures me that only 125 sets of chess mugs were made, and there aren't going to be any more of them. I'm glad I got mine. They're large porcelain mugs that are dishwasher safe. The cost for the set of the four mugs would normally be $72 plus shipping, but if you use the code PERPETUALCHESS at checkout, you can save 15% on your order. Once again, the site is chessmugs.com, C-H-E-S-S-M-U-G-S.com, and the code is Perpetual Chess. And if you didn't write it down now, it's in the show notes as always. But now it's back to the show. Uh, on the topic of sort of um, your teaching methods and uh, improvement, um, I know... Uh, I was, God, it was like 12 years ago at this point, you wrote a letter for, I mean, not a letter, an article for U.S. Chess uh, highlighting your favorite teaching books, which I still occasionally refer back to. Um, obviously, I'm sure it's changed since then, but but what, what chess books, when people ask you for recommendations, do you most often um, give? Um, there's one I really love uh, by Johan Helston called Mastering Chess Strategy. Um, and he has a companion volume, Mastering Endgame Strategy. And I, I'm not as into Mastering Opening Strategy, but Mastering Chess Strategy is such a fantastic book. And you can even buy the ebook because it's an everyman book. Um, 
it's it's just like beautiful examples of improving pieces and hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah, I I really like that book as well. So what level students do you generally use that with? I mean, obviously, like us, like me and you can learn from it as well. It's it's not for, you know, it's um it's a pretty advanced book, but it's accessible. So so what is the lowest rating for whom you would recommend that book? Um, I really think that that's about the guiding questions that you give kids. Like, I feel like you can give that you can give problems to that from that book to 1200s if you're at, if you're saying like what pieces is not active and how can you improve it mm-hmm. or especially if you if they know it's the bishop you know because by that book is grouped by piece um but i think i think 1200 if they're talented okay and what about for for a listener um adult chess player looking to study it on their own what do you think um you know i think adult chess players are actually more capable um, of understanding that book than than kid younger chess players rating wise, just because I find that you know adults who are a thousand m- might hang pieces, but still be able to appreciate like like fairly complex concepts. Um, so I, I think that book is good for um, anyone who loves chess, especially anyone twelve hundred or over. Okay, any other maybe even a thousand. Any other recommendation? And that one's good because uh, so often we have people recommend tactical books. And of course, uh, lots of, um, I interview a lot of grandmasters. So a lot of them uh, recommend the, the Gelfand um, positional decision-making books, but there, there aren't that many positional books for, for club level players. And that's one that's accessible and really good. Um, any other um, recommendations you want to throw in Elizabeth or? Um, We've already talked about the steps books and um, all of the. Ta- Do you have like a favorite tactics book? Um, I, of course I love Coakley. Uh, I usually use steps for tactics. Um, oh, chess school, chess school, like one A and one B and two. That's a great collection of problems. Okay, what? Really like so is that a is that a book? I saw you. I think you mentioned it in the UTD lecture as well is that a book or is that um like an online thing yeah it's a book if you go it, like amazon has it it has some like picture of an elephant or some like very simple design on the cover that's animalistic okay all right so we'll track that down and uh and take a look um okay and and we've got some other topics to to discuss because elizabeth you did one of my favorite things for guests to do is um is give me an outline of a few topics that you wanted to talk about. So, um, you mentioned that, um, you mentioned that you feel that there are some ways that chess can be marketed better. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, a lot of people are looking for stuff to do and I feel like chess has such, such appeal to so many people. Like so many people learned how to play chess in school and like don't as adults actually play chess. Um, I feel like there are there are not so many opportunities really to play chess in in, um, in modern life, and there are lots of people that aren't getting exposed to chess who who could be very into it. Um, and, and the USCF, I don't know. Uh, I think it could have a mo- a cultural moment, just partly because it's so good in education for combating like video games and screens. It's such a um, slower way to think. Yeah, I I agree. And I kind of feel like chess is having a moment. But I mean, of course, 
it's only scratching the surface of what's possible. So, um, how do you think? Uh, what could we What could we do to to grow the game more? Yeah. So one one idea I have, or one thing I see in like um, kids applying to like high schools and kids in high schools applying to college, one problem that they have is that. If you're 1800, it's really hard to convey what that means to any program um, out there because it's just it's just a number, and and if you don't know what the rating system is, it doesn't mean anything to you. Um, so what I'd like to see is something like you know Junior Honor Society. That's on everyone's college application, and people know what it means, even though it's. Um, I don't know. I don't know how meaningful it really is, but because it's such a recognized term, it's become um, like ubiquitous. And I feel like in chess, if we had ratings that were labels that were like high school master, right, that a parent could expect their child with a certain amount of effort to achieve and be able to put on their resume or their college application, that there are so many more moms that would be pushing their kids into chess. Be like, you you go and get that high school master title it'll look great on the on the application and if, if we had that at, at like 1800 or 1600 or something that you know maybe you have an elementary master that's 1200 and a junior high master that's 1400 and a high school master that's 1600 and that's a commonly understood term then i think it changes this the stakes in in middle school and high school education okay um, um yeah and i know that that we you posted about this on the uh, the Facebook chess teachers group, which any chess teachers listening, if you're not too anti Facebook, if you're on Facebook, you should join the group if you're not already in it. But um, but yeah, I mean, people mostly a lot of people were sort of arguing about the details, but it seemed like you had some some general agreement in principle that that some sort of titles would be good. Um, I think a lot of chess players react to like the the master, like using the master title, um, because they want to like somehow protect it. Right. But I feel like that's like that's the currency that chess has to spend. You know, we have this this aura of being like very intelligent people or or um, very mentally accomplished, and I feel like we have to spend a little bit of that capital in order to grow. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I also think there's a huge amount of anxiety with parents around both like having special needs children um, and even non-special needs children addiction to screens. And I feel like we could be marketing chess as an antidote to that, Um, partly because some kids with special needs really would gravitate to chess, like autism, like I feel like is a great example. I feel like a lot of the top hundred chess players are sort of on the spectrum and that in the chess world, it's not a problem really to be autistic. Like it's a very accepting community, a very neurodiverse community. Um, and, and chess is a game where like autism, if you want to do things repetitively and you don't want a lot of social contact and, you know, you're very good at memorizing things. And I feel like there's, there are aspects to autism that sort of help you with chess. Um, and it could be something that parents see as like, wow, this is something my kid could, could excel at and be very comfortable at and be accepted at and, and really find their home in. Um, and I feel like the USCF should be marketing uh, chess to parents of autistic children. Um, yeah. Because I think that they're desperate for, for something. Yeah. Uh, when I interviewed I am Cyrus Lakdawalla, he 
um, he was one of the first times he talked about being autistic and I got a couple, I'm sure he got even more, but I got a few emails from, from listeners saying that it resonated with them and they either were autistic or were the parent of an autistic child. And I've certainly, um, just being a teacher, um, I've certainly taught my share of them and, and you do notice, or I noticed that the chess often resonates with, um, with, yeah. uh, students who are on the spectrum. Um, but in terms of the marketing, um, like what specific, do you have any ideas specifically about uh, like in uh, the titles thing? That's fairly clear. You, I mean, <laughs> implementing it is another story and we'll talk more about, uh, implementing changes on USCF boards or US chess boards later. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of marketing, what do you do? You have any ideas of what U.S. Chess could do? I mean, they're not like running commercials. I mean, it, I feel like it might come down to more of a grassroots thing, a more individual teachers thing. Is there something that the could be done at the national level? Um, I think there was recently a, a conference, an autism conference on um, out of the po- box educational methods um, for autistic kids. Uh, uh, and I think that kind of a conference is something that, like, maybe the USCF should be at, right? Because it seems like there should be people interested in doing research on on chess and, and autism. Um, it seems like also you could maybe advertise in 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 journals that go to autistic parents. I feel like there are a lot of Facebook groups that are mo- a lot of parents I know with autistic kids are on Facebook groups or follow people on Facebook. Um, who might be interested in in chess or talking about chess? Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, yeah, I mean, and yeah, I think it's um, an excellent idea. And you mentioned ADHD as well. Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of students who like because in chess it's it's such a rich game and there is so much to think about that I feel like sometimes. Kids with ADHD who find their minds going from one thing to another, their minds can go from one thing to another within a position um, because there's so much in a position to sort of zing around off of um, that I find some kids have have success with chess, not all of them. And maybe I feel like with autism, it's more more of a fit. Okay. Um, yeah. And the kid, uh, Patrick, was, was he in Brooklyn Castle? Was, <laughs> was he ADHD? Yeah, he was. Okay, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you can see that chess plays an outsized role for, for him. Um, not the strongest at the time, at least not the strongest player in the program. But I mean, he really his story really adds to the, the depth of the film. Yeah, I think it, a lot of people could relate to to how hard it was to struggle, you know. And, and that's a lot of chess, right? Like confronting like... How much it sucks to lose. Yeah. To be willing to do that. Yeah, it's it's one of the great challenges, especially for finding the right way to to communicate to kids that that it's just part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we alluded Elizabeth to the US Chess um scholastic committee. Um you'd also you'd made a post in um well you have a blog that I should have mentioned earlier that um uh, you've written maintained for many years where so there's a little bit of chess teaching advice, a little little bit about when you were playing more actively. Um, you would you would track that. 
Um, and of course, some sort of in the weeds stuff because you've been very active in the U.S. Chess Scholastic Committee. So when I announced that you were coming on to the uh, Patreon supporters of the podcast, I linked to your blog post about some issues that you had, you'd had, and um, and someone wrote in to ask a question. So I'm going to read the question, and then you can sort of, uh, you know, we might need to give a tad more background, but we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll tackle it that way. So this is a this is a question from a recent Patreon uh, pledger. So thank you, Charles, for for joining the club. It is much appreciated. Um, And Charles asks, he says, Elizabeth, as an educator myself, I appreciate and understand the politics lurking behind most educational endeavors. Very very well said, Charles. Um, So I'm curious to know more about the context of your February 2019 talk at UT Dallas Annual Chess Fest Awards. By the way, congratulations on your Chess Educator of the Year Award. However, given that most of your, your most recent blog of September asserts that, and he quotes, Sunil Wiramantri, uh, kick me off the voluntary scholastic chess committee without warning or notification because he unilaterally felt there were too many people from New York. I'm wondering, was there any shade or resistance before or after regarding your invitation to speak at UT Dallas, since Sunil appears to still be an advisory board member of the UT Dallas Chess Club? So we might want to back up a tad bit <laughs> before before yeah. um, before diving fully into Charles's question. So do you want to give the background? Or do you want me to attempt to, Elizabeth? Um, yeah, so um, go, go ahead, Ben. Okay, so yeah, because this will be good because I can give the sort of outsider's, somewhat outsider's view. Um, so yeah. from, from what I've gathered from your post, uh, there was a movement afoot to <laughs> change the rule um, traditionally, for as long as I can remember, there have been there's different sections that are traditionally compete for prizes in the Scholastic Nationals here in the United States. Um, there's the high school section, which is grades nine to twelve. Um, then there's the junior high, which curiously has a bit of overlap because often it's um, is it six to eight or seven and eight. Uh, yeah, so so junior high started out being traditionally like seven to nine, and then over the last twenty years, they all sort of moved to six to eight for for a variety of reasons, but mostly because people felt like educationally it made more sense, um, and they pretty much completely changed. Um, so it used to be unclear, um, you know, it used to be like K eight and K nine. Maybe we needed both because truly there were both kinds of schools, but now there's only K eight. Um, there are a couple schools in, in Northern California, I think, that are still seven to nine, but there are none that actually send kids to nationals. Okay, yeah. Like, so, not but, at all. But, but I just want to lay it out as clearly as we can. So for the, for the prizes, traditionally, there have been um, seven to nine and, or se- sorry, six. I'm just trying to remember because I, I generally, it's been a long time since I played and I, I generally, if I coach, it's more likely at the elementary nationals. So does it begin at six or begin at seven, the prizes, sixth grade or seventh grade? So the section is K to eight and K to nine. Okay. Sorry. Um, okay. So K to eight and K to nine, traditionally there were both sections, but they recently did away with the K to eight section, even though as Elizabeth was saying, um, the vast majority of schools are K to eight, and um, Elizabeth, which schools is it that that have K to nine? So, um, 
it was done away with. Um, so, so all the schools are K to eight. Um, the only schools that will be able to bring ninth graders are schools that are K to twelve, right? Because there are, are no K to nines. So the K to twelve schools um, are generally the private schools. And of the five people on the Scholastic Council, three of them represent um, New York private schools um, and stand to benefit from this change. There are no other schools that send kids to nationals that that need to have a K to nine section, but they've changed everything in K to K to nine, and they say that now they're saying that in two years they're going to change it back to K to eight, but they felt people needed time to adjust. Um, I don't know who needs time to adjust other than um, them, right? The but it seems anyway. It seems just like the sort of definition of of corruption or, or even like corruption 101 that you can't like come to a leadership position in an organization and then make a decision that directly benefits you and only you you know it it's not fair to every other school there's in, in the country that these five or six new york city private schools get to use ninth graders and nobody else does Right. So that's the crux of the issue is that, I mean, and obviously with, with kids, that one year is a huge difference. Um, and um, and so it, it helps them. And, and we should say, and you did mention this in the blog post, there are there's sprinkling of, of magnet schools around the country that are that are either K to 12 or I went to Masterman, which is five to 12. Hunter, of course, famously. Yeah. Um, is uh, K to 12. So there are a few public schools, but it's predominantly private schools that, that this rule change benefits. And then when you um, protested this because the, the traditional grouping, I know that that's the case in Princeton. I checked just out of curiosity here, here where I live in Princeton. I mean, it's the kids, high school is its own building, you know, ninth to 12th grade is its own building. Um, and and junior high has their own building. Um, but in any event, when you protested this, they removed you from the committee. Um, and, and why, why did they do this? What was the reason given? Um, they'd actually removed me from the committee a, a year or two earlier. Um, they removed me ostensibly because there were too many people from New York city. Um, and, and I would think I was the only person removed that I don't really know. Um, but I'm sure that wasn't why. Like, I was active on the committee. I was on several subcommittees. Um, and nobody would respond to my questions about could I be reinstated or was it really fair to remove me without telling me for no real reason. Um, and I feel like it was just because they knew that I would well, – I was going to stand up for um, the interests of public school kids and, and, and people outside of this small elite group. So were you voted off the committee or? No, Sunil Wimontree personally removed me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't seem very democratic. Um, no. So what, how, can, how can we work to change this? I mean, they say they're going to change the ruling in two years. Um, would you want to be back on the committee or has that ship sailed? <laughs> Um, I, I want. I think that there should be representatives of, of public schools on, like, on the Scholastic Council and on the Scholastic Committee. Like, yes, I would like to be back on it, but I would also like to see, like, um, 
I would just, I think there needs to be more people holding power that don't represent the same small set of interests. Um, I don't think it's guaranteed that they will change it back in two years. Um, and, and it's also unfortunately the case that private school students in New York are all a year older than their public school counterparts. Um, and, and that's not something that maybe is easy to change. I think they do a great job at, at girls' nationals of, of avoiding that problem by having age sections, right, eight yeah. years and under, ten years and under. Um, but it's really, it's it's terrible for the people coaching the younger grades, like kindergarten, first grade. How do you compete with kids that are all a year older than you? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. And, of course, there's the question of, of resources as well. I mean, of course, you, you and I, we, we know a lot of the people who coach at these schools. And, you know, we think it's, or at least I, I think it's great that these these schools are investing in chess. I think it's good for the kids. It's obviously good for the people I know who work there as coaches and, you know, like uh, Beatriz Marinello, who I interviewed recently from Dalton was saying that, uh, I mean, they have, they have chess practice. I think it was every day. I mean, I don't know. So obviously like at a private school, that's, that's a big investment. Um, So that already uh, gives, gives schools like that an advantage. And again, it's not that I don't want, or wouldn't want those kids to do well, but you just want, um, and there's really, you know, these these some of these issues go sorry go ahead it's tremendous that they're getting chess and and i don't consider it an advantage to like be taught well and and have access to education and that's fantastic like you just you shouldn't be able to have kids that are like in ninth grade because even these private schools don't think that the ninth graders are with the eighth graders like these private schools are also in general grouped uh, K to five and six to eight and, and nine to 12. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also, I think it's great that they have them just the, the only other, the only thing I wanted to say was this. So that gives them, uh, it may be, it's an advantage that's primarily a good for, for everyone involved for those kids. Um, but it's already an advantage, uh, obviously like the, the, the resource disparity between them and other kids who are working hard to win these titles and doing fundraisers to come to nationals and so on and so forth, they are already at an advantage. So, so to, to layer more advantages on top of that, um, from, from my perspective is, um, um, maybe not totally necessary. Um, so I hope that answered, uh, Charles's question. I mean, he also asked about the teacher of the year thing, uh, the educator of the year from UT Dallas. Um, I'm guessing there was no real controversy with that. Was there with, with your winning oh, that no. prize? I mean, I, they're, they're super nice at, at UT Dallas and, and I'm really interested in chess programs and, and like how you could, like what it's like to be a coach there. Um, and they run a great program. Um, I, I think honestly, sometimes awards like this are a little bit random. Like, I don't think I did anything in 2018 that was different than previous. I think maybe they just kind of pick someone. Um, I mean, that's how the, the USCF Scholastic Committee gives out their award of the year. You know, people are just like, anyone got a suggestion? And then someone suggests someone. Um, so in that sense, like, I, it's nice to, I'm, I'm very honored to receive it, but I think it's a little bit random. Okay. Um, I, I don't think that Sunil has any part in choosing. Okay. Yeah, that would that would have been my guess as, as well. Um, but I mean, nonetheless, like you say, it's, it's a nice thing that they do. And certainly... Um, you, no one more deserving than you, whatever, whatever year they, they give it to you, um, is, is welcome. No, um, it's, it's a great program and I was honored. Okay. 
And so getting back for a second to this, uh, this U.S. Chess Scholastic Committee rule change, for anyone who's listening, um, is, is there anything like, is there anything they should do if they have an opinion about this? Um, like, uh, write the U.S. Chess or post somewhere, or what would you suggest if, uh, if we wanted to make sure that the rule, at, least, at minimum, does get changed back in two years? Yeah, the USCF uh, made a post about it, and I made a comment, and then the comments got all deleted. Huh? Um, <laughs> funny. What was the, what was? Um, um, if, would you like to to remake your comments since it was deleted? Or it was. They said these comments have been deleted because this discussion is more appropriate for the the chess forums. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess if you don't like the discussion, you can just delete it. Uh-huh. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, I think there was some talk of starting a petition, I guess, at the parents and coaches meeting at nationals, um, or, or just express your feeling to, to scholastic council members, because, I mean, even, I don't know, I don't see how you don't see how it looks. You know what I mean? It it just benefits them, and it's, there's, you know, if there was any team in the last five years that brought more than two kids. And there's, there's like one that brought two kids, but they're brothers. And so like, I don't think that there's a school program there. It's like, there's no one else the, that's a canine school. It just, it's so hard to defend. It, it really shocked me that they, they did it. Because um, it just seems so nakedly self-interested. Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't disagree. I will say that obviously, I mean, I think... Um, some of the some of the people involved are are on if anyone that's involved either hears this interview or hears about it and you know would like to to come on perpetual chess and discuss it um give give their point of view i i would welcome that i don't of course i am i am friends with elizabeth but i'm i'm friends with some of the other people involved as well but so i mean just from my perspective i I'm welcome to other views, but certainly when I read your blog post and read your post, I, your post on Facebook, I, um, you know, I, I understood where you were coming from. We could say. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I, I, you know, I like Beatrice. Um, I, I try to like, just keep my head down and not complain about stuff. I just, sometimes people go a little far. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and yeah, I mean, New York, it's amazing. I mean, it's awesome. I I lived in New York for 10 years. I love New York. um, And I love the chess culture there. And I love that schools are such a part of it now. I mean, they're teaching between chess and the schools and all of the other programs and the, the private schools. I mean, just having that many kids learn chess. I mean, that, that spurs the next generation. So I love that about chess in New York, but um, that they're doing so well at the Nationals um, is, um, yeah, it would be great if we had more New Yorks, put it like that, if if, yeah. if we could somehow replicate that in many places. Um, yeah, you know, I go in sometimes to this building to teach a, a private lesson, and there are two other chess teachers in, like, the common area of the building who are giving a chess lesson at the same time. And, like, one of them, I don't even know who the person is. Uh, it's, it trips me out that there's so much chess teaching going on. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, how many chess teachers do you think live in in New York? No, I mean there are, there are. I think there are dozens of people I don't know. Yeah, you know, I've never heard of. Yeah, it's it, it's great. I mean, it's great to see. And I mean, and so I mean, New York has the chess history. 
with the Marshall Chess Club and with Bobby Fisher, of course, and with all of the school programs. And it also has the ability for kids to improve because, as you mentioned, Harvey, um, getting to play at the Marshall and like J.J. Lang, recent guest, uh, adult improver, I mean, just was able to make incredible strides because you can play so many more tournaments than you can anywhere else. So, um, But it would be nice if uh, we can find a way to to replicate that all over the world. <laughs> yeah, I think I really think it's about having t- like scholastic tournaments, like regular easy to get to scholastic tournaments for kids. Yeah. It's hard for school programs to grow in, in the absence of that. Yeah. Yeah, I when I lived in Pittsburgh, that was um there was some chess there of course, but it was definitely the the thing that that kids lose motivation if they're not uh if they're not playing tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then, of course, if you run them and there's not enough interest, like someone needs to be willing to stick it out, unfortunately, because like um, if you try to, exp- it's not like there weren't tournaments, but um, there there needed to be more in order for kids to improve more more quickly. Um, but if you run more at first, no one's going to come and you're giving up your time and sometimes your resources to make that happen. So it, it takes some dedicated people to to grow that kind of culture. But I mean, if some places like Arizona, you know, like doesn't doesn't have to be a chess hotbed, but, you know, they they seem to punch above their weight um, yeah. and, and nationals. So it, it can be done. Of course, St. Louis, obviously, <laughs> um, although it feels like uh, I mean, it's amazing what they the chess culture built there, but uh, I don't know how replicable replicable it is. Yeah, probably it takes a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's bring it back, Elizabeth, before before I let you go, if you don't mind, um, to to chess parenting. So how do you, you, um, like, what are your visions for Noah? Do you... um, Now that now that he's got an excitement for chess, how much do you think about like how how to approach it? I, I recently got to interview Jonathan Rose, and I know you've been posting excerpts from his book. Um, yeah. Are you are you before we get back to parenting? Are you enjoying the book? All the moves that matter. Yeah, the books the book's really amazing. Um, uh, especially like the last half, he really like digs into some some interesting topics. Um, he sort of talks about. Um struggling with like if if chess is enough to sort of support a life right like to support people who want to be chess players and and eventually like they figure out that it takes too much effort and it doesn't give back enough somehow um and he writes about that very eloquently and i I was really enjoying that he writes about that in in comparison to having kids and the the emotional meaning but lack of interest of of having young children um, and I guess because I, I have young children, I really relate, related to that. Yeah, I related to it as well. And that's that sort of brings it back to what I was um, bringing up before. So um, do you have a vision for how much you would want um, your children to to um, to invest in chess? I mean, I've... I think it's I think the most important thing for me is that they are passionate about something yeah. you know they, they grow up like not people who aren't going to be bored people who are going to like find things that are compelling to do with their time and and so it's it's beautiful to me to see noah like come home and just want to play chess for like six hours every evening um even though i recognize on some level it might be a little unhealthy um i i, I would never want to limit him really 
unless he was getting no, you know, okay, he needs some exercise, he needs some, um, he needs to learn to read or whatever. Um, but I think it's wonderful to, to to be passionate about something and to to see how far you can challenge yourself and and to to find pleasure like losing yourself in in intellectual activity. Yeah, that was per- that was excited. perfectly said. That's how I feel as a parent as well. I just I want I want them to find that enthusiasm for something. So not gonna not, don't want to force feed chess, but but yeah, um, some activity um, um, would be good. And you know, I feel like I'm not very good at parenting, or I don't feel like a natural parent. Like I don't exactly know what to say. But I practiced my chess lessons so long. And it's so exciting to me that he wants to hear them because I feel like like I'm good at that. Right, of and, course. And it's it's fun. So what's what's the most recent lesson you gave him? I mean, is it like an actual sort of this is the le- like you know teachers have sort of stock lessons after a while? Do you, is that what you're doing, or are you just sort of? Uh, yeah. I'm so, totally doing my greatest hits. Nice, <laughs> so awesome. So <laughs> like the pins give a problem and and. And oh yeah, I, I know that problem. I because uh, you sent me some of your materials over the years. It is a good one. Um, yeah, I know it's it's super fun. Can I put that one in uh, a link to that in the show one? Can we share it to to everyone? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's a great. Yeah, and for listeners who are interested, if you haven't, I mean, I, you used to have like your curriculum up on your blog. Is that still there? Yeah, I have all. I have a, um like a fifty week curriculum and like a big chart uh and then i have the sixth grade like kind of scripted curriculum yeah yeah. it's so good yeah i mean more for teachers than than any listeners who are just working on their own game but teachers should definitely Mm -hmm. if you're if you're still making it available you guys should and you haven't already you should check it out um any plans of uh writing a chess book elizabeth i mean you could uh, you could distill all that stuff with all your (laughs) Um, with all your free time you know, I'm I'm working on a database of like all the positions I use in teaching, um, like indexed, so you can search like pin and it'll give you, uh, you know, fifty positions and you can sort them by rating and and there'll be like five pin lessons in order or something, um, so that's like my, what I dream of of creating, um, I'm so busy, just managing my life. I feel yeah. like I'm barely not, like not getting my imminent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not book but maybe when i'm like 55 i'll think about it yeah that makes sense well we'll look forward to it and uh and um get you back on perpetual chest then <laughs> wonderful okay. i'll update my calendar <laughs> exactly all right uh is there anything else elizabeth before before we let you go no thank you it's been a real pleasure okay and if people um want to um weigh in on any of the issues we discussed or if they want to reach you i mean is uh facebook or your blog i guess are the best ways oh yeah but i'm um i'm not very good at getting back to people i mean you can try sometimes i do if i'm in the right mood but uh i'm really kind of antisocial in a lot of ways with strangers okay all right. Well, we'll put them there just I'm in sorry, case. I'm sorry. That was really unfriendly. Wasn't no, it? but I mean, it's. Uh, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to set people up for. Uh, you know, just to be uh, disappointed. I'm so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm so busy. I can't even keep up with my life most of the time. Yeah, I know the feeling. So <laughs> totally yeah. understand. Well, on that note, I should probably let you go. So, so thanks again, Elizabeth. This has been a long time coming, but but well worth it. I think. Uh, 
people people will gain a lot from uh, listening to this. And thanks thanks for all you've done to to help these kids and promote chess over the years. Oh, totally, my pleasure. Um, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy, but also to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether via word of mouth, positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. All of that stuff helps more people find out about the show. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. You guys have enabled me to continuously work to improve and now expand the Perpetual Chess podcast offering. So for that, I am forever grateful. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice's Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clef, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, where you've been hiding, Moonmaster, you haven't asked a question in a while. Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I would also like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, or possibly not I am elect. Either way, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt of Chessable, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy. Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paula Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Peter Sodi, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrancouge, Wayne Beam, William Brock, 
William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network.